Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, how did you appreciate that Animal Crossing football announcement thingy? <laughs> it wasn't as good as the Carolina Panthers retro video game announcement from last year, which... Oh, I forgot about that. Which, I mean, okay, so they did a pretty good job of implementing the Animal Crossing elements and Blathers saying Washington redacted football tickets, what a wretched thing, was yes. actually got a loud guffaw <laughs> out of me. That was very good. But nothing can beat the way that they actually implemented Carolina Panthers like iconography into classic video games. You really got to go check it out. It's phenomenal. That was really cool. I remember that now. That was that was like really good work. But uh, fair play to the Detroit Lions. Uh, first place in memeing, last place in the division, but whatever. And first Ooh. place in our hearts. Burn. There you go. Uh, Eric Van Allen is a Green Bay Packers fan, uh, and I am, of course, a Minnesota Vikings fan, and we can join together in making fun of the Detroit football team. (laughs) That's the only, like, allyship Americans have now, is making fun of each other's football teams, like, as groups. Yes, it's true. The NFL, uh, the thing that was funny to me, and I promise we won't dwell too much on the NFL for our listeners' sake is that they were pretending like the in, the schedule was going to go forward as if nothing is happening. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, I, I don't know the ways of football, but I kind of have my doubts, but yeah. If there's no way in heck that they're actually <laughs> going to play out that schedule the way that they're planning to have it. It's just They're just doing it because, you know, just in case, maybe a vaccine comes out next month out of nowhere and all of a sudden you have a regular schedule again, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be really nice? It would be really nice, but it's much more likely that they come up with some... I, I do think there will be an NFL schedule. I just think they're going to come up with some kind of cockamamie way to mm-hmm. make it work. Yeah, kind of like how wrestling has been doing like shows in front of nobody. You can go with the Dana White method of buying an island and just having all the games there. Oh, that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, so coming to you live from NFL Island, sponsored <laughs> by Geico. <laughs> there's no way on and no way off and then you make like conquering territories that would be really fun that would be a news take on football so you 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 put out the stadiums around different parts of the island and if you defeat a team in one of their stadiums you can take it over that sounds like Yu-Gi-Oh! like the the first story arc where pegasus had everyone on that island and like to get to his tower you had to beat other other people and take their stars or something stupid like that Acts of the Blood God, the only podcast where you're going to have NFL football conflated with Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> hey, it's a good matchup. It sure is. All right, Nadia, we have a fun topic this week. This week, we are going to talk about the failed RPGs. The RPGs that, for one reason or another, just never quite caught on. Never became a series. Never really became anything. But for whatever reason, they still stay in our hearts. And we yes. wouldn't mind if they got another chance. So that is this week's topic. And, of course, we're going to cover all of the RPG news. We're going to talk about some of the Xbox Series X game showcase and what it meant for RPGs. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, can I invite you to go on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice and leave a review of Axel Bloodgod. It helps the visibility of the show, and it also warms our tiny little hearts 
And you can also follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And we also have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Wednesday. And I took point on the newsletter this week, Nadia. Yes, you did. Thank you so much for that. I had a day off. Yes, Nadia got to take the day off. I wrote about what the X, the then upcoming Xbox Series X showcase would mean for RPGs. And Nadia, it turns out not a whole heck of a lot. No, the only thing of interest we saw was uh, a, Car- a Scarlet um, Scarlet Grace. Was it called? I mean, oh, it's Scarlet Nexus, and that was Scarlet more Nexus. of a beat 'em up. Yeah, that's not even. I'm thinking RPG for some reason. I guess because I'm being like you know stereotypical. It's from anime. X It's from X Tales developers. Yeah, maybe that's why I'm thinking like, oh, okay, RPG. But you're right. It's not really an RPG. Uh, you're right. There was just not a whole heck of a lot there for RPGs, which is a disappointment because uh, this is the studio that now how like is supposed to be working on Fable and uh, absolutely nothing there. But the whole presentation was more about third party. They said they were going to hold off on first-party announcements and only focus on third-party. Yeah, yeah. Still, it was just kind of like, eh, all right, well, more Assassin's Creed. That's great. More Vikings. But not even really, they didn't really show anything to the point that the creative director actually said, yeah, sorry, we know you expected more. It's a long marketing campaign. We'll show more soon. Just hold tight. Yeah, I know that a lot of marketers are kind of, you know, obviously everyone's pivoting to digital really, really, like, on the fly because... So many events and preview shows and everything has been canceled. All these, all these things are usually hands-on or just not happening this year. At the same time, I wonder, it's like, okay, well, you have a really good example with Nintendo Directs. They are almost unfailingly excellent. Even when the games are kind of, eh, whatever, they're there, they're done, they tell you what you need to know, and they're on to the next thing. And it just seems like uh, Xbox, sorry, it just seems like Microsoft and Sony haven't quite got the hang of that yet for their digital presentations. We were having an interesting conversation in Slack, and when I look at the Xbox Series X, it's kind of hard to know why exactly I would ever buy one of these things. Yeah, I agree. Um, I will say that it is kind of a thing that happens with a lot of new new consoles uh, without the killer apps going on. Like That's what you need, of course. You need that killer app, not just like, oh, this game is coming to PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4. That's not much good. You need that that one game that you have to have. Nintendo had that with the Switch and Zelda. Like That was a must-have title. And from there, everything just kind of took care of itself. Well, I think the bigger problem is it's not necessarily a killer app problem this time around. It's going to have Halo Infinite at launch. That's true. It's going to have... Uh, it's going to have Fable at some point, probably. I mean, there's a lot of heat around the rumors that Playground Games is rebooting that franchise. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the problem is that I'm going to be able to play these games everywhere. I'll, I'll be able to play yeah. Halo on the PC. If for some reason, I wanted to play Halo. I don't know why I would. Um, I'll be able to play Fable on the PC. And yeah, I get it. Not everybody can afford a high-end PC. And then in that case, the Series X can be kind become sort of a secondary option almost like a pre-built pc but also Mm -hmm. they're going to have the cloud gaming service and game pass and all of that Uh, theoretically i feel like i should be able to just stream it directly into my tv and for a game like fable as long as the streaming quality is like pretty high i wouldn't necessarily know the difference that is true um we have said in the past that services like cloud services like uh, stadia uh which is pretty much dead in the water uh, even though they're kind of a failure for action-based game, for RPGs, they're perfectly fine because they don't need those reflexes. So, um, you know, thinking about it, you brought up a good point about how, well, a lot of these games that are 
quote unquote exclusives. You can just pick them up on the PC. And I don't really have that option, you know, because I don't have a very good gaming gig uh, uh, rig. But um, yeah, I guess it's people who do have a, a pretty good computer can just pick it up without any reason for getting an Xbox. And uh, that's a major weakness on Microsoft's point, I guess. I, you do have an excellent gaming gig, though. Everybody yeah, wants I do. to be on Axe of the Blood God. No complaints there. The best gaming gig. What, yeah, I suppose when I look at the Xbox Series X, I get it. I'm kind of an elitist gamer. Uh, I can afford to have a high-end gaming rig and everything. It, it's not. I'm not saying that there's no niche whatsoever for the Series X. I'm mm-hmm. just going like Microsoft is sort of eroding the value of the actual box that it's trying to sell us on. Well, at least it looks like a fridge. Well, I mean, Microsoft. Oh, yeah. I loved Aaron Greenberg having the stupid fridge in the background. <laughs> it was great. I want that. I want to buy that at Best Buy. But maybe Microsoft doesn't care. Maybe the Series X box is just a Trojan horse to get you to buy Game Pass and they see themselves as a mm. service provider. The, the true owner of the Netflix of games. That is a very good point. I think you have something there. Microsoft, of course, has more money than God. Um, so if they get a little bit less on the uh, on the new Xbox, I don't think they're going to be keeping. I don't think they're going to be like you know staying up at night with like horrible thoughts. As you say, it's all about Game Pass, and they really want you to get Game Pass. And frankly, Game Pass is a great deal. So that's the Xbox Series X showcase for you. Not a lot. They're going to show all of the big guns. Uh, in July, and in the meantime, uh, the ball's in Sony's court. I expect that the PlayStation 5 will bring the heat with a lot of really cool games. So I'm uh, mm-hmm. looking forward to that. And I think the PS5 will be more essential. I, I feel like you can very plausibly make an argument for just owning a PS5 and a Switch going into the next generation. But Yeah, that's what it's kind of looking like. I probably will own an Xbox, but uh, to be honest, my PlayStation 4 and my Switch are the ones that get all the play. My I barely pick up my Xbox. <laughs> Get Game Pass, a Switch, and a PS5, and you're set. Because you get Game Pass and you stream the games that you end up missing. You get a PS5 for all the Sony exclusives. And you get a Switch for all the Nintendo exclusives. And yeah, I get it. And if I had to choose one, I'd probably probably choose the... It would be a hard choice, Nadia. Mm -hmm. I would probably go Switch... But uh, I feel like I would be missing out too much on the PS5. It's the it's the uh, conundrum of past generations we've that uh, we have talked about many times in our console RPG wars. Like, yes, the N64 was great for Ocarina of Time and Star Fox 64, but you missed out on everything else. Same with the GameCube, which we talked about last week in our RPG console quest. Like, it had of course exclusives like Metroid Prime and, and Super Mario RPG Thousand Year Door, but you missed everything else. So you are buying a Nintendo machine for Nintendo products, but you are doing so with the caveat that you are missing out on everything else. Yeah, all these games that I won't be playing. Okay, let's continue on to the rest of the stuff. We had a fair amount of cool RPG-related coverage going up on US Gamer this week, Nadia. You did an interview with Ted Wolsey. Yes, that is Ted Wolsey, the uh, former translator for Square Enix. He translated... He actually started with Final Fantasy Legend 3 on the Game Boy. I didn't know that. You can read all this in my feature, which is up right now on the site. Um, so he started there. He went on to do, I think he did Secret of Mana. Like He had to go very quickly on that. He did Final Fantasy 6 slash 3, which is his probably his best known work. And my argument, my whole feature centers most of the way around Final Fantasy 6 because I feel like its localization 
really was one of the things that helped RPGs get a little more notoriety amongst fans. Of course, Final Fantasy VII was the one that really launched into the mainstream, but Final Fantasy VI was the one of the first RPGs, first console RPGs, to tell us a really good story. And the thing that's fascinating about that story is that Woolsey had to do it around very strict censorship policies that Nintendo had at the time, around uh, 1993, because uh, it was before the ESRB and the government was on everyone's asses about video game uh, content, like violence, nudity, etc., etc., etc. So Nintendo had a very long list of things you could not do or say within a game. One of those things was you cannot really refer to death or dying or etc., anything like that. And this is a game about the apocalypse. So I actually asked Woolsey, like, how did you do that? How did you get around all this? And the simple answer to all that is he played the game several times through. And before he even played that, he'd become a great admirer of Square Enix's stories because they were so thorough and so, like, you know, rich. So he wanted to do right by Final Fantasy III's cast and story. So he worked very hard to find those substitutions. And uh, occasionally one or two uh, naughty things fell through because the way the censorship process worked was he would kind of send a VHS of his translated stuff to Nintendo and they'd say, okay, fine, or hell no. So not everything got through to them. And of course, translation was kind of a disjointed disjointed thing to do at the time anyway. So yeah, there's some really interesting facts in there. Please read it. Um, I had a a good time writing it because Ted Woolsey is like kind of a, a... uh, someone I, I hold up in very high regard because Final Fantasy VI was one of the reasons I became a writer. And if it was localized like a piece of crap, I probably wouldn't have been that interested in it to begin with. People tend to goof on Ted Woolsey a little bit with Woolseyisms and mm-hmm. talking about how it wasn't the most precise translation, but he sure did infuse those games with a lot of heart. And he did, it's telling yeah. that Square Enix still continues to use names like Altros to this day. Yeah, Ultros, the the octopus, you know, the don't tease the octopus kids, octopus. He was supposed to be Orthos or or something like that. It's a a character from Greek or Roman mythology, a two-headed dog. And he mistranslated accidentally as Ultros, and that name has stuck. There have been a couple of instances where he's shown up as Orthos, but it's it's pretty rare. To this day, even the Final Fantasy XIV server named after him is named Ultros. So, yeah, his... He has definitely made an impression that has lingered across years and years. Like, you can fight Kefka in Final Fantasy XIV. He has, like, most of Wolsey's lines are intact. He One thing he really, really did was give life to Kefka. Kefka, if you go to Lo- Legends of Localizations, which is a great site by uh, Clyde Mandelin, uh, he has, like, a whole lot of comparisons between the versions of Final Fantasy VI, the, the translations. And Japan's version of Kefka was... Not exactly. He didn't. Of course, he had a personality, but they, they, he really lavished it onto Kefka in, in the localization of Final Fantasy VI. So, yeah, he did a great job with Kefka there. All right. If you haven't already, and if you're a blood god disciple, what are you doing if you haven't already read this article? <laughs> yeah, come on. Go check out Nadia's interview with Ted Wolsey over on the site. It's a great interview. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed editing it. So oh, thank you. Yes, so go check that out. In the meantime, some other notes of interest. All right, Joel Franey, who is our guides writer, wrote about, he asked a question that I thought was kind of interesting. Why does Skyrim feel so old, whereas contemporaries do not? Yeah, that was a very good article. Um, 
And I was thinking about it myself, and he, he lists a lot of the reasons, of course, but I think one of the reasons why Skyrim, you play it now and it feels a little bit old and, and dated, whereas some of the a lot of the games from the same era don't feel nearly as dated. And it was written, the code was written on wet toilet paper to begin with. Like, <laughs> it's, back in the day, Skyrim was a marvel. In many ways, it still is a marvel. And it had this enormous open world that was, nothing was quite like it at the time, but it was so bug riddled. But back then, we could kind of give it a pass because, number one, it was kind of funny at the time. Number two, it was just a matter of trade-off. Like, hey, look at this amazing open world. Uh, yeah, I fly up in the air if a giant hits me with a club, but who cares? I, I can like, I can climb mountains if I want to. But now that we live in an era with, say, Ocarina, sorry, not Ocarina of Time, Breath of the Wild, which is just a rock-solid open-world game, like nary a bug to be found, that really does age up Skyrim quite a bit, in my opinion. That's just one factor of many. Yeah, I think that Joel made a pretty good point when he said that it feels weird to play Skyrim in the vanilla form. You really want to mod it mm -hmm. up as much as possible. And that's not necessarily the case with some of his contemporaries. You could just play Sky Dark Souls straight. Yeah, no problem. Easily. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I am not someone who cares. I, I am not a mod person because I am console trash. I've gone over this before. But even I will like download mods to play Skyrim because otherwise it's just so like why am I doing this like the one mod I absolutely have to have is one that makes it so that the the mer merchants always have cash on hand and I don't have to wait around a day to for their stocks to restore because that was dumb so just small even like the smallest gameplay tweaks make a big difference in Skyrim but you can only get those done through mods I went and got the graphics upgrade packages and I got various armor packs there's a really good Skyrim edition that turns it into more of a survival RPG, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, it's definitely, it's almost like a mod showcase. That's, that's like its form and function these days. So go check out Joel's article. And final piece of story news. This is an interesting one for Blood God readers. So somebody asked uh, Matsuno, the creator of Final Fantasy Tactics and Vagrant Story, well, one of the many creators, and I think they asked if Matsuno had a prologue for a Vagrant Story 2, and he wrote it out. Okay. Wow. So do you, I'm going to read it out to you, all right? Are you ready? Uh -huh. Yes. The tracker, Jack, is a youth of mysterious qualities. Not only can his rate of success at finding fugitives and missing people as often as nine times out of ten be considered that of a veteran, so can his ability to pry information on his targets from those who would refuse to share it willingly. The caliber of his skill set is unquestionable. A man of measured intent intuition, that is Jack's standing evaluation. Many a client seek the services of one such as me on account of these sentiments, the impetus for my current assignment likewise. The fact that you can are present here before me puts veracity to your notoriety Set aside your anxiety, for I already know it all. Your ability. Yes, you are in possession of a special ability, are you not? To be precise, the ability to read the hearts of others. The very same ability as that of your mother, Jack. Nay, Margot Merlos. It is all as the target spoke. Who, or better yet, what is this man? Me? I am Joshua, the head of the Barborda Dukedom. Allow me to explain to you the true nature of the work that I, I desire your assistance with. Okay, so there you go. 
So let me get this straight. Someone asked Matsuno, hey, uh, can you write a prologue for Vagrant Story 2? And he wrote this out, or did he have it already in his mind, I wonder? From the sound of it, he was responding to a fan on Twitter, and he said that he had made the prologue document in question in 2013, and the ah. original plan dates back to 2002, which is about two years after the release of Vagrant Story. And he posted the whole thing. And a fan went and uh, translated it, which is why it read a little bit strangely. But th that's the j basic gist of it. My first thought was Persona 5 for some reason when he said, read the hearts of others. My first thought was steal hearts. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, like go into the, the palaces and steal the hearts. Um, I did read Joel's story. And I seem to recall he mentioned uh, there are quite a bit of Matsuno's ideas, like uh, brought up here, were kind of implemented in his storyline that he wrote for Final Fantasy XIV, which he's a huge fan of. And I won't really get too much into the details because it is a little bit spoilery. It has to do with the Shadowbringers DLC. And it also has to do with the, the Save the Queen sword, which is a sword that is, um, I think it originated in Final Fantasy IX. It was Beatrix's sword. And it was kind of like retrofitted into Final Fantasy VI as Celeste's sword because I've always said those two characters are very much alike in many ways. So yeah, um, I'm just really glad to see as a as a writer and you're a writer too, at Matsuno just kind of still thinking about these worlds that he created and he thinks very highly of them and of course he deserves to because they are like just fantastic worlds. So I'm glad they're still active in his imagination. You think I'm a writer? Wow. You, you, you write sometimes. <laughs> That's the nicest thing anybody said to me about me all day. Do you write a lot of fiction? I don't think I've ever seen you write too much fiction, but not in a long time. No, you I used should to write. I wrote fiction a long time ago when I was in high school, but no longer. You should. It's a good way to wind down. I suppose so. I but when I'm done with work, I don't want to think about writing anymore. I just want to play video games. I do feel that. I understand that. As for Vagrant Story, I suppose it fits into the upcoming topic as a, a failed RPG that we wouldn't mind seeing come back. So, Yeah, poor Vagrant Story. What do you think? Would you would you want a Vagrant Story sequel? I could, I could go for it. I think it'd be really cool. I would honestly be fine with a Vagrant Story sequel. I mean, like I just said, like it looks like Matsuno has been thinking about this for a very long time. He could probably give us a really good game, a really good story. Um, I would kind of like it to be accompanied with a remaster of the original Vagrant Story because uh, it's been so long since I played that game and someone stole it from me, so I can't play it again. <laughs> so picture this in your head. Matsuno and Square Enix reunite as it was Matsuno remaining a contractor, and they make a PS5, AAA, all the bells and whistles, Vagrant Story 2. Oh my god, that would never happen. Not in a million years. No. But we can dream, right? I mean, this is all dreaming. This is this is this is the dream episode. These are the games that are never coming back, but we wouldn't mind if they did. Anyway, yes. so uh, let's continue on, Nadia. Well, Nadia, it's time to look back on the RPGs that never quite made it. And I think we kind of explicitly were trying to avoid games that were part of long series, long running series that ultimately petered out. Uh, for example, of, of course, we all want to squeak it in to come back. Yeah, <laughs> that, of course. That would I be mean, really duh. nice. And uh, I was pulling for Breath of Fire. Chrono Trigger, Breath of Fire. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe let's go with maybe some lesser known RPGs in, in this case. Uh, looking at the games that we ended up listing, I, I noticed that there were some... Here's some reason that they ultimately failed. One, they came out at the wrong time. Yeah, um, some of the games on our list, I did notice they came out a little bit too close to the next generation of consoles, which is never a good position to be in, ever. That's that's the way a lot of great games get forgotten and buried. I think also there are just... Uh, some of them came out right on top of much bigger games. Yes, like it, it's death to launch alongside like a Final Fantasy game, for example. And at least one of these games was released pretty much during the deadest of dead times for Japanese RPGs in general. Like when Japanese RPGs were deeply uncool. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. There was a time, and we will discuss this, I'm sure it will come up, when Japanese RPGs were just deeply uncool. Absolutely the uncoolest thing in the universe. The least cool thing. And I was standing for them. And I was right, damn it. <laughs> you were totally right. I was right. But yes, there was a time when uh, basically the core of the sun was cooler than RPGs. Number two, uh, they were released by studios that were fading or just poorly run and kind of in a bad place. That's never a great feeling. Yeah, there are a couple of instances of that. Um, I know that one of the, the studios that we'll mention is a bit of a heartbreaker for you. Eh. Yeah, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if it came back, but at the same time, it's like, maybe it's time has passed. Maybe, but I always think of that sort of, like, I always think of Quintet. Like, I never stop thinking about Quintet, and they'll never come back. But, yeah, th that happens with a lot, of, a lot of studios that release, like, one or two brilliant RPGs, and they just kind of fizzle out, and so does the studio, and it's really a shame. Number three, there are just too many games. Yeah, that's a big problem these days. It's so easy to get buried. Yeah, you put out a big old game and you put a lot of time and effort into it, and the game takes like 70 hours to play, and everybody goes, yeah, but I don't really want to put the amount of time into this game, <laughs> and they just kind of move on. Yeah, yeah. They're like that meme with Andy from Toy Story dropping uh, Woody on the floor saying, I don't want to play with you anymore. I, I think that there are just so many games now that you can kind of afford to be picky, whereas once upon a time, you know, only a few, kind, a few game, really good games per year. And you would just be like, well, I guess I'm going to play everything. Well, my mom bought me Muppet Adventure and I have nothing else. I may as well play this damn game. Really? Yeah, my parents once bought us Muppet Adventure for some reason. And basically, sometimes we get so desperate that I tried to finish it. And I came close. This is really stupidly hard for a stupid Muppet game. God, that game sucked. And number four, they got bad or middling reviews at the time and were thus overlooked. But actually might have had something to redeem them. There are definitely instances where a game, reviewers have no idea what the developer is trying to do, and they say, ew, I can't deal with this right now. And then you go back and you say, oh, actually, this game was actually pretty good for what it was doing. Uh, you did see that a lot, in, like not necessarily with RPGs, but just uh, to give you an example, 2D games in the late 90s when everything was going 3D, and, and reviewers and magazines were looking back at, like, God, like the gorgeous games, like, Mega Man X4 and Symphony of the Night and saying, oh, God, what do we need these for? We got, like, we got Castlevania on the N64 coming. So let's start with an RPG that maybe would be of really great interest to our particular listeners. Um, it's by Hironobu Sakaguchi. 
And it came out during a time when he was running Mistwalker. He's still running Mistwalker, to my knowledge, though. He's mostly focusing on mobile games these days, which makes it doubly sad. Uh, It was the third game that he released. The first one was Blue Dragon. And then, of course, they made Lost Odyssey. I think there was also a Blue Dragon spinoff for the DS or something. There was, yeah. I forget what it was called, but there was one. Yes, yeah, so they made Lost Odyssey for the Xbox 360, and then they made this thing for the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> this thing. And it was called The Last Story, which everybody immediately started making Final Fantasy jokes, Last Story, Final Fantasy, etc. Yeah, I don't think they're too much alike, though, are they? Uh, Not really, though I do get a little bit of a interesting, like we were talking about Vagrant Story, when I look at that art style, I do yeah. think of like Ivalice in Final Fantasy Tactics. Yes, it does. It definitely does remind me a bit of Ivalice. Um, the last story is one of those games that I really do regret not picking up. And this was a time when I was actually, you know, starved for RPGs and picking up whatever I could, whatever I could get, because this, of course, was part of Operation Rainfall, which gave us uh, Xenoblade Chronicles. But for some reason, the last story slipped out of my hands, and that's really too bad because um, it did kind of ultimately not really fail, but it did it's kind of fall by the wayside. And of course, it never really had a follow up. I think I reviewed it. <laughs> Did you really for for one up back in the day? No, I, I reviewed it for somebody. I was definitely in the industry at the time. Maybe GamePro. I remember that it had a pretty cool battle system. Uh, this was Sakaguchi, kind of buckling and going, "Fine, I will make an action RPG." But the action RPG he made was quite tactical and required you to use the environment in interesting ways. And you could kind of break the environment as well. There, were, mm-hmm. I seem to recall that there were cover-based mechanics. And I was watching old videos of the combat system. It looks really good still. Yeah. That would be a great candidate for a remaster on the Switch, but that's probably not going to happen because I don't know what Sakaguchi is even doing these days besides fiddling with mobile promises. I sort of got a whiff of Final Fantasy VII Remake in some ways with this battle system. It had a meatiness to it that I really appreciated. Though you could also line up and fire a crossbow at enemies, whereas you didn't... I mean, you had ranged attacks in FF7 Remake, but it was a little bit different. Yeah, definitely. Um, ranged attacks in FF7 are a little bit more... not quite as elegant as that. Yeah, because you would... In FF7 Remake, you would actually be locking on enemies. In this one, you would be aiming manually aiming the crossbow. Yeah, and I am always pro-crossbow. So this game came out toward the tail end of the Wii's life cycle. Right, that might be why I missed it. So that would be a big reason why it kind of ended up being missed, because the Wii was very much... Like, people were just done with it. People only wanted HD games at this point. Mm-hmm. Anything that came out on the Wii, people were like, no, absolutely not. The Wii really fell out of favor for a while. Like, the Wii really fell out of favor by the end. Yeah, the interest in the Wii just cratered after 2010, I want to say. That sounds about right. That's when Nintendo should have released the Wii HD. That was the time, because by that time, the Wii had been around for four years. You could gracefully segue into a Wii HD that supported all of the Wii games, and you'd be fine. Yeah, but they didn't do that. They gave us the Wii U. Yeah, that was a whole different story. I look forward to getting to that one in the console RPG quest. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun. Holy the, crap. 
the the five or ten frothing Nintendo fans who stand for the Nintendo Wii U at this point are gonna just be all up on our case. <laughs> Look, guys, like I I love Nintendo. I have a Wii U. I lined up for it on a really really freezing Thanksgiving day, uh, but it was not a very good console, and everything almost everything that's worth playing on it is on the Switch now. And the problem with the last story also was that this was at a time when Japanese games and JRPGs were pretty uncool, as I already mentioned it. <laughs> as we so were was, talking about, yes. So it was kind of a double whammy where people just weren't as interested in JRPGs, and they definitely weren't going to play any Wii games. And even though it got a real burst of hype from Operation Wainfall, and also the pedigree that it had, it just wasn't quite enough. And yeah. after that... Mist Wa- uh, Mist Walker was done. Sakaguchi was done making mainline uh, RPGs. He transitioned over to mobile. We lost him to the deaths, and it makes me really sad, honestly. Yeah, um, I was actually watching an old review from game trailers about the game and kind of noticing how just, even though game trailers was at the time, it still is as far as I know, or rather Ize allies who transitioned from them, They've always been pretty good about RPGs uh, and enjoying them. And they were, even then, this was like 2011 or so, or 2010, they were just like, eh, RPGs, you know, they're kind of, you know, gross, but uh, this is a pretty good one. It's different, we swear. Like, yeah, it was just like, I'm almost amazed at how like badly people talked of the genre back then. If nothing else, a remaster for the Nintendo Switch would be nice because I think the art style of this game really holds up. And it's one of the last games that I, to my knowledge, that was scored by Uematsu. Does uh, Uematsu, I know he's on a little bit of a hiatus now because he was ill, but um, does he not compose at all anymore? Or? No, no, he still does work. He helped out with FF7 Remake and whatnot. Right, I thought so. Yeah, but he like did the full soundtrack with like oh. no other contributors on this one. Okay, so yeah, he definitely doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, so uh, last story, great looking game, cool battle system, uh, very clever in a lot of respects, interesting world. Uh, It's kind of a crime that this game didn't get more love than than it got back at the time. Yes, somebody needs to be put in jail for this right now. And I think it would translate really well and uh, get it away from the shackles of the Wii and put it on a modern console with some a few added graphical bells and whistles and people might recognize that, hey, actually, in fact, the last story was a good game. Yeah, and uh, gosh, it really says something also for the state of RPGs back then when you had to have an organization like Operation Rainfall just kind of wrestle to get them over here to begin with. Well, uh, Nintendo was... It wasn't a great really time, honestly. No, it really wasn't. <laughs> and I, I think that when you looked at a game like The Last Story, I, I, I just think that it would translate well to the modern era. So Yeah, it absolutely would. It, it's I feel like it's kind of like the... Um, uh, Sharp FE, which everyone overlooked when it first came out. And if you, I don't know how it did with the remaster, but I understand it did pretty well. I think it would be like that. People would say, oh, that's the game I missed the first time out. I'd really like to get it this time. And I think they would. Okay, so let's transition to the Western side to an RPG that came out around the same time. And this is kind of an infamous one, Nadia, as Kingdom of Almalor Reckoning. An RPG that actually wasn't too bad by the standards mm-hmm. of the time, but tends to be overshadowed by what a 
complete disaster 38 Studios turned out to be. Oh, man, that's the one with the baseball guy, isn't it? <laughs> the baseball guy. <laughs> that's all I remember, baseball and 38 Studios go together in my brain. Yes, and- Kurt, Sch- Kurt Schilling, Red Sox ace pitcher, the author of the Bloody Sock game, and a guy behind some really bad memes. Don't read anything about <laughs> Kurt Schilling these days. It's pretty pathetic. But he really loved EverQuest. And mm, he yeah. adored MMOs. He wanted to make his own. And so he sank all of his money into creating a studio called 38 Studios. And he was planning to make this big MMO with the help of R.A. Salvatore and Todd McFarlane and all of them. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of a wow knockoff, whatever. But before they did that, they made an action RPG that was uh, published by the EA Partner Program. And it got it had a big budget, and it was massively hyped. And it only sold a little more than a million copies, and it failed to break even, which was kind of bad news for 38 Studios because they had a lot of people. They were staffing up like a big-time AAA studio. Right. And then they yeah. discovered that making MMO was hard, and they went bankrupt and got into a big old fight with the Rhode I- state of Rhode Island, and it was just ugly. Yeah, the state of Rhode Island doesn't. I think they had a grant or something. Or it basically came down to that was taxpayer money that was supposed to kind of come back, and it, it didn't. Yes, the Rhode Island Chamber of Commerce or something to that effect lured Thirty Eight Studios over, got Thirty Eight Studios to come over, established them in like Providence or whatever, and uh, yeah, Thirty Eight wasn't able to make payroll, and then. Rhode Island was like, wait a minute, so we're not getting our money back? (laughs) And it became a whole dang thing. I remember it very well. I remember it now, too. Well, Kingdom of Avalor Reckoning, at the time, it got good reviews. And I was was watching old videos of it. It doesn't really hold up. It kind of looks like WoW meets God of War as an action RPG. Very much for its time. Yes. Oh, it's so of the time. Like, the way that uh, the main character is tearing apart enemies and that kind of thing. Yeah. God of War. Everyone wanted to be God of War. Why would I want this to come back? Because I think that in the hands of a capable developer, they could modernize it, much like God of War. Right, that's fair. Yeah, and I mean, a good, meaty action RPG is, you know, not out of the realm of possibility. A lot of people compared this at the time to... Mass Effect and uh, God help me, Dark Souls, but not really Dark Souls. It had a pretty, <laughs> it had a pretty meaty and interesting uh, kind of skill tree system. Uh, lots of different classes to play around with. Kind of an interesting world to explore. And I think that if you updated the graphic style and kind of maintained a lot of the core of the combat and everything. Uh, and delved further into this world, it it could be really interesting. Like it could be right there alongside a game like the the Elder Scrolls series, but it doesn't. Right. Uh, but I I got bad news, Nadia. I did some research and uh, mm-hmm. found out who has the IP right now. No, it's not Thirty Eight Studios. No, I well RIP Thirty Eight Studios, but no, it's THQ Nordic. Uh, oh. Everybody's favorite purveyor of buying up ips and putting out cut rate versions of them yeah nobody wants that sorry why bother i have other things i can play yeah so they put out a lot of the darksiders games which 
Apparently the top-down kind of Diablo-like version of the previous Darksiders wasn't too bad. The rest of the games, eh. So it's definitely, a, I guess in this instance, we'll call it a a maybe on wanting to come back. Like, there's a lot of games on this list that I'd rather see ahead of it. Yeah, well, put it this way. Uh, a 2HQ Nordics published uh, Kingdom of Amalur sequel probably wouldn't get too much attention from me. I think this is more me lamenting it not being in the hands of a better publisher. Yeah, one who might give it, who might have a chance of giving it new life. Okay, let's jump back over to the Japanese side of things, Nadia. And I'm just going to sit back and let you do all the work now. Oh, no. Uh, Talk to me about Radiant Historia. God, Radiant Historia. Now, we got a kind of a remaster of that on the 3DS. I think it originally came out on the DS. And that is a game that it doesn't really play in a straight line. You kind of go back and forth through timelines going through this these like chapters like ju- jumping from chapter to chapter and doing so like in order to save a world that's slowly suffering from like desertification so you wind up replaying a lot of chapters but, like in different situations it's kind of a difficult game to describe but once you get into it you really get into it uh, it has fantastic story uh has a fantastic soundtrack graphics are a little bit eh but that's really secondary uh, yeah, there is actually an episode where, uh, Anthony, Mike Agnello, and I, uh, talk at length about Radiant Historia. This was a guest episode where, uh, Kat was on vacation, you know, God splashed her for going on vacation. But yeah, Anthony and I had a really good time playing this game. And after playing the remaster myself, I would, I would pretty much be down for, uh, I don't know if I can really say a sequel, but something in the, in the vein of that story that that disjointed that purposely purposefully disjointed storytelling would really resonate with me it was a it was a really good experiment that for the most part worked very well so yeah i'd love to see that again put it on the switch hell put reading historia on the switch i don't care i'll play it again <laughs> well it's already out on 3ds with the perfect chronology yeah and that's fine but you know rip 3ds you know the last time I turned on my 3DS was when I was transferring some Pokemon over to Sword and Shield, and I was like, how do I even use this thing? <laughs> Why is this screen so small? How do I get on the internet with this thing? Oh, forget that. Yeah, I, I felt like I was cutting wires and sh- shifting things, almost like I was defusing a bomb just to get it onto the internet. Even, um, I think the Rune Factory 4, the new the port for the Switch, proves that you can port 3DS games, 3DS RPGs, quite competently to the switch they're not always the best looking games like you can, you can tell in rune factory 4 that the cows are made of like six polygons but it, it plays very well so it doesn't matter well if you're playing the axe of the blood god drinking game i guess take a shot because we're doing port begging for switch but <laughs> do not die of alcohol poisoning i guess if i feel like if bravely default can get a sequel on nintendo switch why not radiant historia yeah exactly um, there is no reason to really just not give it another chance. It would, at the end of the day, be kind of a second-tier Octopath Traveler-style RPG, but at the same I'm time, Octopath that. Traveler was very successful, so nothing there wrong you with go. that. You need to have those. Not everything can be a Final Fantasy VII remake. You know, look at how much I like Trials of Mana, even though it came out and it was like really subdued next to Final Fantasy VII remake. You just kind of need those come-down games. <laughs> All right. 
So jumping back to the Western style side of things, we're hitting a lot of games that came out in that 2010, 2012 kind of period. I think practically almost all of these games came out around that time. I guess this is just where my mind is automatically going in a lot of these respects. So not all of these RPGs, just most of them. Most of them, yeah. It was definitely a time. It's it's very interesting looking at this list because... Yes, you're looking at 2010 to 2012, and this was a very bad time for JRPGs that we have discussed, and just RPGs in general. But I feel like one of the reasons so many of these games are, are worth looking back on is because so many of them were came out with the idea of, hey, let's bring RPGs back. Let's give people something to really latch onto this time. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, it didn't work. People just weren't in that mindset, but those RPGs were still very good. I guess people were just too busy playing third-person RPGs, or third-person cover-based shooters, and they were like, yeah, RPGs, nobody wants to play that dork stuff. <laughs> I mean, you just think about how resistant 2K was to turning, uh, X, going back to the tactics well with two, with XCOM. Right. Yeah, that's true. It was, uh, yeah, everything was cover shooters. It just changed everything. So let's talk about Alpha Protocol, a game that came out in 2010. It was made by Obsidian. And... At that point, Obsidian had made two games. They had made Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 2, and they had made Neverwinter Nights. And I think it's important to note the context for which Alpha Protocol came out. It was very much in the wake of Mass Effect. It was totally Mm. kind of riding on Mass Effect's coattails. And the awkward thing about Alpha Protocol is that it came out in June 2010. You know what game came out before that? Nadia? Gosh, which game came out before that? Mass Effect 2 came out just a few months before that. Oh, golly and gosh. Alpha Protocol was a Mass Effect 1 darn game. Ooh, well. Yes. It, it tried. It, it was very janky. It was very unfinished. Everybody was like, what the heck is going on with this thing? I don't think it got very good reviews, ultimately. I remember it came out when I was doing Active Time Babble, and I'm pretty sure I played it and did a report about it for uh, for the podcast at the time, back when I was doing stuff for 1UP. Uh, it ended up getting a 72 on Metacritic, mostly because it was so broken. But, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure we put it on our top 100 games of the decade, Nadia. Is it it's one of those games like Final Fantasy VII Remake where you're like, I have so many problems with this game, but it's one of my games of the year. I think that for as broken and janky as it is, it the quality of its ideas really shine through. Right, right. And I, I, I always cheer for games like that. I do love that I looked up whether or not there was a really good fan patch, like with Blood uh, Mas- Vampire Masquerade Bloodlines. And mm-hmm. somebody just on Twitter, Reddit said, the jankiness is part of the charm with this game. <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely true, I suppose. Sometimes the jank is just part of the charm. The jank, the jank. Embrace you gotta the jank. Have the jank. Uh, I asked Eric Van Allen, who is a big Alpha Protocol fan, why why do you love Alpha <laughs> Protocol? Everyone this has weird that ass secret agent RPG that's Mass Effect that was Mass Effect one in two thousand ten and he said uh, the branching paths, the way it captures the camp of spy thrillers, its weird mix of RPG mechanics with third person stealth. It feels like someone made Metal Gear Solid, the RPG. That's an interesting way of putting it, as someone who hates stealth mechanics. 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it retains a large part place in people's hearts. And honestly, being a secret agent is such a natural take for the RPG space. That's because true. think about all the gadgets and skills that a secret agent needs to have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you see that a lot. I, I think Deus Ex is one of the er examples of a good high concept secret agent game. But that's more, you know, that's cyberpunk kind of stuff, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's over here. Alpha Protocol was like James Bond or uh, Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And you don't see that explored very often in the RPG space at all. So, so do that. Um, I would love to have Alpha Protocol too. I here's a secret about me. I just I get so bored with James Bond films and stuff like that. I fall asleep. Well, what about Mission Impossible? Eh, I, I don't know. You got some not in the secret I'll agent go. stuff. Just not. I just never got into it. I don't know why. It's it's okay if someone puts it on in front of me. I won't be like, oh, I'm so offended. I'm leaving right now. But it's just, eh, fine. I'll watch it. I just like different settings and that kind of thing. I think there's a lot of opportunities to really make good on a good secret agent RPG. Yeah, that makes sense, because you're right. Most of them do take you, like, most of the movies take you to really weird places full of, like, dangerous things. The moon. Another game that was released in 2010, Nadia, for the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, from a developer that I think is kind of still around, but is a shadow of its old self, if that... Trias's Resonance of Fate, published by Sega. Another game that came out when I was in the games press. And a game that Bob Mackey of Retronauts and I uh, kind of really liked and talked about often at the time. It was a weird game one. Did you ever play this one, Nadia? No. Um, I did not play it, but looking at it, it looks like it's a lot of fun. Uh, the, the battle system is all as you put it, uh, gun foo, where people are just doing these matrix flips and shooting at each other. Sure, why not? I'll take it. It was very different, and it really spoke to Trius's desire to come up with a cool, interesting, very different uh, battle system. And it was certainly that, to the point where nobody knew how to play this game. <laughs> yeah, I have heard that the battle system is extremely dense, and the problem with that is the tutorials are, number one, very skimpy. Number two, not not conveyed particularly well. Like, you have to read a big-ass block of text and go for it. Yeah, I remember that Sega actually went and made an in-depth video on how to play Resonance of Fate because <laughs> that stuff wasn't actually in the game. <laughs> That's always a good sign when the, when the publisher has to throw together a video on how to play our damn game. The good news is that Resonance of Fate is available on PC with a 4K pack. Hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. I, I might give it a try. Who knows? Um, I do have to say, that, and this is a complaint that's come up very often about the game, is the graphics. Although they are, you have some very interesting visual ideas, some very interesting settings, like the whole steampunk, tons of gears and whatnot. The only, the dominant color is gray, and gray to the point of being a stereotype of the games at the time. It's very 2010 in that regard, isn't it? It's so 2010. It really is. And that's a shame because it's not like you can't make a steampunk game that looks really cool. I mean, look at uh, the SteamWorld Dig game, SteamWorld uh, Heights. Like, those are incredible looking games, just so colorful and so still so steampunky. And this is a uh, Resonance of Fate. It's just so, eh, well, we got dark red. If you like dark red, this is good. that's as colorful as you're getting. It was like it was shot through a brown filter. It really does. It was, I don't know why people did that. I'm yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't love it. 
Oh, goodness. And that's too bad because it's such a, a, a strange looking game. Like at, at a time when we really when we really needed those weird off the walls JRPGs, it seemed to be that despite the graphics. It had so much personality. And exactly. If, if you look back at what Resonance, where Trias was as a developer, so Trias had kind of hit the gr ground running with that generation because it made both Star Ocean and Infinite Undiscovery uh, as a partner for Microsoft on the Xbox 360. These were Xbox 360 RPGs. There was just one problem. A, mm -hmm. okay, two problems. <laughs> one, problem one, these games were really bad. They were not good. Yeah, that's always a problem. Problem two, they were on the Xbox 360, which meant that Japanese RPG fans were <laughs> not really going to get the 360, and yeah. Japanese players were definitely not going to be playing these games on the 360. No, that's that's where RPGs went to die. So we come. So Triace's reputation went from kind of respectable because of Star Ocean and Valkyrie Profile to very not respectable. <laughs> Ouch! Poor Triace. So everybody was just primed and ready to not like this game when it came out, and then of course it came out right at the same time as Final Fantasy Thirteen. It was so said to die. Which game would you rather play? Oh, Thirteen. Really? Probably. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I would play Residents of Fate. Hard to say. See, there's another problem. Like, the game, who says Resonance? Like, it's just, can you imagine trying to Google that? Like, I, I heard that the game had another uh, another name, and it, like, originally it was supposed to be, like, something like End of Destiny or something it was simple. End of Eternity. End of Eternity. Okay, that's fine. It's not the most, like, amazing name in the universe. It's a very generic name, though. But Resonance of Fate, re I hate that word, Resonance. The that's such a weird word. Like, what are you doing to me? My brain looks at it and says, Durr! like Scooby-Doo. Like, I, I can't get my head around. I don't know. I, I just imagine it's, myself it's Googling it. It's too generic it. of a name. Yeah, like, I don't know. It doesn't say anything about the game. It really doesn't. No, that's exactly a problem right there. They should have just called it Real Meat! Exclamation mark. What's the deal with that Real Meat line? Uh, there's this very weird cutscene where this lady who's kind of a, an aristocrat or something uh gets hold of real meat and just has this almost orgasmic experience screaming real meat and the camera's like going back and forth and she's like eating and meanwhile the main character is kind of dancing like a lunatic and i'm like what is going on it, it really speaks to this game's sense of humor there's just nothing like real meat Oh, 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 it doesn't get any more real than that. Oh, oh, if you're serious about letting loose with those bunker busters, <laughs> they'll be surprised when I return fire with my trusty magnum. <laughs> oh, I think the point is, is that they're living in kind of a steampunk slums kind of environment where resources are scarce and whatnot. So it's exciting to have real meat. No, that's fair, although rats are real meat. Nadia, gross. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just super saying. One more thing that I want to say about Residents of Fate is that I really like the cast. They're, they're, they're a very fun cast, and there's a lot of shots of them just hanging out in their apartment watching weird TV shows and that kind of thing. When I 
Yeah, I can relate to that because when I went to Japan for the first time and I saw those TV shows, I'm like, wow, this is some like Fifth Element stuff right here. So yeah, I, I understand what those I don't understand where those characters are coming from. Oh man, Fifth Element almost describes this game. It's it's just such yeah, a high go. concept like mix of weird uh, elements, and it's certainly memorable. It's totally st- stayed in my mind. Uh, these characters don't wax poetic necessarily about destiny. They're talking more about grounded concerns, like watching game shows on their TV. Yeah, like, oh my god, I can't save the world right now. My game show's coming on. Like, come on, I totally relate to that. Who wouldn't? Or eating real meat. So, eating real meat. Gotta find some real meat and eat real meat. I, I'm okay with Residence of Fate never coming back. I just wanted to highlight this kind of weirdo gem of a game. <laughs> <laughs> well, Triace, Triace, of course, isn't dead. Like, I think it's just, like, churning out Star Ocean until the end of eternity. But for as far as original ideas go, it sure went out with a bang. All right. Two more really quickly, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, Jade Empire. I don't know if I actually want this one back, but I kind of just want Bioware to put out a good game at this point. <laughs> <laughs> We don't care what the game is about. Just make it a good game. This was like an interesting RPG that was, um, unlike most RPGs, which are kind of based around like Tolkien lore, uh, this was based a little bit more around like Kung Fu lore, like Chinese lore, right? It was weird because it wasn't actually set in China. It was just a fantasy universe that was heavily based on Chinese mythology. They even even invented a new language for it. That's Uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's strange, actually. Um, and, uh, Greg Zischik, who was one of the founders of Bioware said that Jade Empire was a big regret for him because he always felt that if it had been an Xbox 360 launch title, it could have done a lot better, but right. it kind of came out at an awkward time. Yeah. It came out at an awkward time. It was, it was buried by the 360 launch, which was a few months later. Not only that, but, um, they tried to do a lot of really interesting things with the gameplay, but it uh, it fell a little shallow and maybe a little too bit easy. I'd say the thing that really made it stand out was the way it handled the morality system. It was it were it was much more successful than Paragon and Renegade in terms of how it approached that stuff. So I don't know. I I think the thing that I want to highlight is that Jade Empire was when Bioware didn't stick to its established franchises as slavishly, and it really spoke to that spark of inspiration that the studio still had yeah because it was definitely like even though maybe it wasn't as successful as it could have been and it wasn't maybe quite as like you know fun to play as it should have been it was still an interesting idea you just don't see too many universes built off like more of an more of an asian style like that okay last one and this is a true retro rpg it's for the sega saturn Panzer Dragoon Saga, which we've covered in previous episodes of this podcast. We had Ben Lindbergh from The Winger on here to talk about it at one point. You should go listen to that episode. It was a pretty good discussion. Uh, I mean, everybody just remembers this game because A, it had a really good story. It had a really good soundtrack. And sadly, it got very overshadowed by a little game called Final Fantasy VII and also happened to be on a dying platform. Yeah, it had a lot going against it. Uh, some people also cite uh, Bernie Stolar as the reason it died. I can't say if that the it's certainly not the only reason, but uh, supposedly he didn't like RPGs. Uh, uh, you know, he didn't really want them, and he didn't think Western audiences would really go for them. 
So the uh, the numbers of Panzer Dragoon Saga that came here westward was, was very, very small. And even though they kind of gave a little infusion with a few extra copies later on when they realized, oh, this is actually really popular, there wasn't nearly as many as there should have been. And I distinctly remember the ad campaign that Sega had for that in the West where you had a, a on the backs of magazines, you had a, a cutout copy of Edge, the, the protagonist. He had a cutout copy of his face that you could wear as a mask and pretend you were him because you weren't going to play the game. And to this day, I think that's the stupidest ad campaign I've ever, ever heard of. It just existed to piss off people who supported this dying platform. And here was the magnum opus, and they couldn't even get it. And Sega was saying, oh, isn't it funny you can't get this game that you really, really want? It was a mess. So I think of all the games that I listed out here, though I am torn between wanting a return of The Last Story and a return of Panzer Dragoon Saga. I think that the last story, it could be potentially fine. Uh, I think that if they upgraded the ideas behind it and kept the art, and that would be really nice. But Sakaguchi and Uematsu are also kind of done, so it might not be quite the same. I feel like Panzer Dragoon Saga would have a much higher ceiling, depending on how Sega, what Sega wanted to do with it. Yeah. I, I am ready for a deeper dive into the Panzer Dragoon kind of universe. And it could be a really good tempo release for Sega. And Sega's been actually on a little bit of a nice streak lately. It seems like they kind of finally know what to do with their individual properties. So there's a non-zero yeah. chance that a Panzer Dragoon Saga 2 for the new era could be good. Yeah, there is definitely more buzz about Panzer Dragoon lately because uh, we had the the remaster of the first one and the is very terrible remaster unfortunately that's the problem i have with all this like it wasn't the worst thing i ever played but it certainly wasn't a, a great representation of what the original game was and i'm worried about what two is going to be like and i'm definitely i'd definitely be worried if the same studio was porting over saga because oh, i mean yes but that that was just kind of a third-party contract job and it seems like Sega might be a little more careful if they decide to really go all in and do this properly, right? I definitely hope so because it yeah, would be contingent just... on that. Exactly. Okay, that's fair. Yes, if Sega, you know, made sure to take really good care and give the franchise the the respect and love it deserves, by all means, I would. This would be my number one game that I'd want to see a sequel to because. It was just so different, like to really combine shooting elements with uh, RPG elements, and of course, I'm always up for like raising dragons and stuff. Yeah, that's all. That's all the good stuff right there. And actually, that was another game that had its own language as well. Okay, Nadia, what would be the one that you would want the most? Uh, definitely Panzer Dragoon Saga. Uh, like I said, it's just a very unique RPG. I haven't experienced it. I can't really get to experience it unless I pay out a lot of money or, or fiddle with, with emulation, which I'd rather not. Um, and just I feel like there are... What I have seen in the game, because I have watched playthroughs, there are so many things to expand upon. It's a very interesting world. It was a very interesting story. Uh, the dragon rearing system was really cool. So if they brought all that back and, and then some, it could be it could be a really great RPG. I would... I would definitely uh, be going for it as long as Sega put a good studio in charge or better still, did it all internally. All right, that's the RPG failures. 
that we wouldn't mind seeing return. Well, with the possible exception of Kingdom of Amalur. Meh. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody else doing that one. Uh, yeah. What are some RPG failures that you would like to see returned? Uh, try to j- j- try and focus on the games that were more one-offs than just uh, the you know series that petered out. I'm sure that you have plenty of answers for us, and we would love to know. Uh, send a comment or send me an email at cat.bailey.usgamer.net or my DMs are open at the underscore catbot. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, continuing on with the theme of the RPG failures that we want to see get another chance, or maybe not, uh, see if you recognize this track. Yes, that is The Long Dream from our favorite, The World Ends With You, another game (laughs) that was released around that golden 2008. uh, I think this game came out in 2007. I was definitely living in Japan at the time, and I walked past Shibuya every single day in order to go to work, so I have very fond memories of this. This this really brings me back, Nadia. And so does the soundtrack. Woo, what a soundtrack. I cannot believe this game started out on the Nintendo DS. Yeah, I'm still amazed. Like, when I hear how many tracks had lyrics and they were all, like, very clear and not just all, like, a compressed mess, I'm, I'm still amazed at how well Square Enix built this game. Yeah. So, I mean, if you forget about The World Ends With You, it was a Nintendo DS game originally. It had the two screens. It was very innovative. had that crazy art style to it. really stood out for that. And it really stood out for its multifaceted and very dense soundtrack that they somehow crammed onto this itty bitty cartridge and the thing that always jumped out at me and i'm i know that you're the same nadia is that it always changed from Mm -hmm. battle to battle yes um you could usually count on getting a different uh song every time you went into battle which is always really nice because a lot of rpgs do not do that and it still drives me up the wall i have heard it suggested that the song type like the the genre changes according to who you have in your party, but I haven't really verified that myself. Why did you like this song in particular? It's the one that really, like, I, that I remember the most. Like, remember how, so you know how sometimes you think back on a game and you think back on the soundtrack and just that's the one song that comes to your mind? To me, this was the battle theme that came to mind, because even though there are many battle themes, like, this was by far the one that stuck with me the most. And of course, in my memory, like you just also hear the uh, the characters shit talking each other over the the music, which you don't hear in the sample, obviously. 
But uh, that was part of the charm of uh, The World Ends With You, just how everyone just kind of jabbed at each other while they were fighting. Not the kind of driving music that you would normally associate with RPGs either. It was kind of more laid no. back. It was interesting. No, it is a, it is a, a, a very kind of soothingly dark soundtrack. It's a very interesting feeling to it. Um, I personally, I don't know about you. Do you have Synthesia? Synthesia? Uh, is that the one where you see colors in sound? Yes, I, I have that with sometimes, and I definitely have it with this song, and that's one of the reasons it stands out to me. Like, I kind of see it as a, a very dark purple, and it's not really a, it's a little bit of a foreboding color, but also a little bit relaxing. So, yeah, it, it sends different vibes, like conflicting vibes, and that might be why it stands out in my memory so much. I think my favorite song from the World Ends With You soundtrack is not a battle theme at all. It's Calling which is the music that plays while you're walking around Shibuya. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's another very chill one that I will sometimes listen to. I mentioned that not all of the music, all the battle themes are driving. I mean, obviously that's not true. Uh, Twister is one that's very driving and I yeah. think is kind of the er example of the World Ends With You soundtrack and it gets a remix at one point, but uh, what a yeah, wonderful right. soundtrack. I, I still can't believe this thing was on the Nintendo DS. It was it was basically a miracle. The whole game to me is just like a fluke or something from uh, from Nomura because. I, I like Nomura generally, I really do. I know he gets a lot of flack, but I feel like a, a game like The World Ends With You, you can really just see his potential as a game designer. Whereas, like, he's a, a, he's a little more, like, conflicted with uh, Kingdom Hearts and the Final Fantasy VII Remake because, you know, he gets a bad rap for, like, oh, haha, zippers, oh, this game will never come out. But it feels like The World Ends With You was his one chance where he just was, like, so harmonious with the universe. So the lyrics in this particular song, feel the people, hear the voices, they are reaching out to catch you, feel the rhythms, hear the noises, you're beating all the visions. Is it angels? Is it devils whispering in my ears? Is it emotions? Is it illusions? I need to be with you. So it's a very literal just, yep, here's the premise of the game right here. Yeah, it, it is very uh, J-pop in that regard. It is very literal. Uh, it almost sounds like the the rhyme they do in, in Cool Runnings before they uh, uh, start getting on the bobsled. Feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. It's bobsled time. <laughs> and the next passage is everyday noises are killing these people. I mean, there's <laughs> it's, it's the game. It's like, oh, it's, uh, here's the premise of the game. But it sounds really nice. You can't really hear the lyrics where the song's going. So you're just like, whatever, it's super chill. Don't care. No, the, the, the lyrics are definitely like kind of the backbeat. And you just ignore them as you play. And... Uh, you know, even though the lyrics aren't exactly like, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets, I do appreciate the fact that so many of the game's um, songs had lyrics, and these battle themes are not really themes that you would hear, like, past, you know, let's say, 15 to 30 seconds. And they, they were, these are whole-ass songs with a, with a lot of verses, and you just never heard them in their entirety. So it was composed by Takeharu Ishimoto, a former Square Enix composer whose credits include Legend of Mana. Uh, he helped, he is a synthesizer programmer for Legend of Mana. 
and he also worked on the Dissidia series and also worked on Kingdom Hearts 3. Um, yeah, you can really get the, the synthesizer aspect is really coming out strong in this. Yeah, it really is. It's very synthesizer, techno-heavy soundtrack. And he has a pretty good resume going on because Dissidia had some really excellent uh, remakes of classic Final Fantasy songs. I'm not sure that Square has put out a soundtrack quite like this since. No, um, I think you're right about that. Not a soundtrack that is so like thoroughly well done and so like has so much care put into it. Like, of course, I'm not saying other Square Enix games don't have care put into them, but this was so unique and so thorough. And there's just the whole game there's really nothing else like it so the world ends with you famously did not sell all that well but continue to get a certain amount of love not the least because nomura seemed to really enjoy the world ends with you and it seems to have basically combined the worlds of the world ends with you and kingdom hearts like he's just going eh screw it they're in the same world <laughs> neku lives in disneyland now doesn't he live in shibuya no disneyland Kingdom Hearts 3 basically was like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes into the 3D computer and then ends up in the real world. <laughs> this is the worst world of all. <laughs> yeah. In that, I think you can kind of start to see the Kingdom Hearts universe and the world ends with you starting to merge in many respects. And of course, Neku has been in the world. It has been yeah. in Kingdom Hearts in the past with the dream yeah, drop one of distance. The, that's the one he was in. Okay, yeah. The thing that's um, kind of a bummer is that, so, okay, if you look at the different versions of The World Ends With You, the iPad version wasn't too bad. I, I mm -hmm. liked that they upgraded the graphics to HD, the, the touch and drag system was fine and everything. The Switch version was kind of a bummer. Yeah, I think I have that. I never played it even because I heard this, the control scheme was so bad. Yeah, it's just such a touchscreen-oriented game that it's hard mm -hmm. to translate it to buttons. I, yeah. I'm i curious, Nadia, would you want a proper sequel to The World Ends With You? It's such a self-contained game, and its its culture is really part of its time. I wonder what, how they would update that, or if they would, like what the, what the clothing scene would look like, what the music scene would look like. I don't know if I'd like it because I'm old and gray and, and I want kids to get off my lawn. At the very least, I would love to have a remake that plays well on the Switch. Like, just give me a tune-up for the game that we've got on the Switch, and then we'll talk about a sequel. I always liked that Neku would get his confidence up, and eventually he could get his confidence high enough that he would just start wearing uh, dresses and the, and the like. Yeah, that was cute. <laughs> what a great game. Yeah. It's so original. It was, yeah. So at the same time, it's hard to say, well, do I want a sequel? What would it be like? Because it was like such a such a product of its time, but in a really, really good way. It was one of a kind. And I don't think you could capture that magic with a sequel. And so I kind of don't want one. Yeah, like I said, I'd settle for just a better, a better remaster on the Switch. Or just play the DS game. You know, I, I think I still have the DS game rattling around my uh my drawer somewhere and it's, it's still a dang good game and you know you can play it on your 3ds it's totally worth That's picking true. up or get it on ipad whatever either one okay nadia we're running out of time so let's wrap this up last week we talked about the nintendo gamecube for the console rpg quest and nadia would you believe it our readers had opinions on the gamecube how dare you have opinions? This, this is not a show for opinions. 
All right, Victory Hunter says, Pokemon Colosseum and Gale of Darkness get a lot of flack, but they did a great job of creating a game for people like me who lived and breathed the third gen experience. It's never been important to me that every Pokemon be available in every game. So I appreciate a more curated roster for the streamlined console game story modes. It meant I got to experiment with Pokemon that I might've overlooked if I had access to my favorites. Plus, the challenging stages were great. Hooking up my GBA and using my party from Rui felt just as magical as the first time I played Stadium with a transfer pack. This is where I learned how to really build a party with synergy. And the soundtracks are killer. Shout out to Mirror B's theme in both games. Yeah, we might actually, we might have missed our chance, but Pokemon Coliseum did have a killer soundtrack, Nadia. Oh, I should listen to it sometime because I don't think I ever did. Satellite of Love says, Look, my biggest problem with that console, I got mine black, so no candy purple, was that controller. Yuck. Miyamoto <laughs> should have never touched hardware. The Ash Paulson, friend of the show, would totally disagree with that because he thinks the GameCube is the best controller ever made. You will find a lot of GameCube controller stands out there. And I, it was never my favorite controller. It had the Nintendo syndrome going on where it was really, really good for Nintendo games. And then for everything else, it was like, whatever. That was really, really bad for the N64. I never particularly liked the clicky shoulder buttons. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, those were weird. They're very springy. Like the, the sorry, the LR and ZR are like very springy. But the you're right, the L and R are very clicky, clicky, clicky. With the weird giant A and then the little jelly bean. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the itty-bitty B just kind of off in its own world. And then the, the itty-bitty D-pad as well. <laughs> yeah, I was not a big fan of the GameCube controller. Like, the button placements would bother me more than anything. Like, why do I need a giant A button? I'm not three years old. Yeah, it, it really lent to the feeling of being a toy versus the PlayStation 2, the DualShock and the Xbox controller, which felt more modern, I think. Yeah, I was never a fan of the Duke, but... Um... I, I've always loved the DualShock. It's always been my favorite controller. And even now, uh, now I play Smash Brothers using a, a pro controller. For so do I. Yep. yep. Um, I actually wrote an article about that. It's on the site. It, I basically, because I wanted to play uh, Smash handheld, I basically weaned myself off the GameCube controller and, and played like pro controller or even just the, the Switch gamepad. All right, I apologize in advance for mangling this name, so forgive me. It's Guillaume from NWR, Nintendo World Report. Uh, and they really wanted to talk about Bat and Kaidos. And so uh, they sent me an email saying, the game constantly breaks the fourth wall and the protagonist addresses you by name, assuming you entered it when asked. You become his guardian angel. There is a real-time element to the game. Your healing cards depict food. But after you've had them for a while, fruit spoils, fish becomes rotten, wine turns to vinegar, and they all inflict damage or poison you instead of recovering <laughs> HP. <laughs> Key items share the same fate, and for some puzzles, you'll have to wait for your milk to turn to yogurt and then cheese. Speaking of cheese, it's a decent healing item, but use it along a moderate flame attack, and you've got yourself a cheese fondue going, which recovers more HP. They put a lot of thought into their food items. There's so much more weirdness. Weird Collage Town, Tower of Druaga Dungeon, because Namco, complete with a pickle, pixel pickaxe to solve a puzzle. You don't get money for defeating monsters. Instead, you take their picture and sell them. Wait just the right amount of time for them to develop, and you get more money. What a weird game. <laughs> that is, everything about this sounds 100% monolith soft. It, it just does. 
Yeah, uh, and you want to talk about RPGs that never really had a chance. Batten Kaido's, I love coming back to the Nintendo Switch. There you go. Yeah, if they want to, you know, a little more port begging, because I know they're too busy to give us another actual, you know, new game in the series, but uh, if they want to release the old ones, I'm right here. I think I'm more in the headspace now to be able to deal with card-based RPGs, so I think I would actually probably dig a new Batten Kaido's. Yeah, I think um, Slay the Spire and... Uh, SteamWorld Quest kind of helped me put me a little more positive towards uh, card-based games. That's because Slay the Spire rules. It does. It's, I need to get back into that, but I played it for a long time. I sucked at it, but I loved it. All right. Thanks to everybody who wrote into us. And of course, keep sending in your emails and we will keep reading them on the show. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Cat.baileyusgamer.net is my email and my Twitter DMs are open. In the meantime, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Please subscribe to us on the podcaster of your choice. Leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. Send us an email if you want to contribute. And we also subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday, in which we round up all of the RPG headlines for the week and include a few thoughts of our own that you won't find anywhere else. Okay, Nadia, we are off again, and next week we're going to be talking about an RPG that maybe a lot of Nintendo Switch fans are really anticipating. I am going to have my initial thoughts on it, so look forward to that. In the meantime, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay indoors, and until then, happy adventuring.